All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, I'm here, as usual, uh, talking to you from New York City on July 2nd, 2019. And we always like to remind you that I'm the editor of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and you can sign up for that letter by going to miningstocks.com. We want to thank our sponsors for the making the show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show, Klondike Gold, Novo Resources, RN Resources, StrikePoint Gold, and Radisson Mining Resources. With regard to Radisson Mining, I would like to mention uh, a fact that was missed last week when I interviewed Hubert Parent Bouchard he, uh, of that company, of Radisson. Uh, he wanted me to note uh, that, in fact, um, the company's management owns a big chunk of the company. Um, well, it's about 13%, which is a good size uh, interest. And we always like to see companies, uh, the managements of the companies that we recommend having some skin in the game uh, with these young companies that are really uh, very <clears throat> very early on and uh, a lot of risk involved. So if the management's ready to put their skin in the game, uh, that's a comforting thought. Uh, at least it doesn't guarantee anything necessarily, but it's better to know uh, that their actions uh, will cost them something if it, if they don't work out than if uh, uh, if they're just playing with other people's money. So anyway, that's uh, one of the positives for Radisson, and Radisson is up nicely today, as are most of the gold stocks, um, given the really nice move in the price of gold today. Um, I wanted to um, mention to you uh, that uh, we're going to have Michael Oliver with us in just a moment, but uh, just a uh, the today's show, the title of today's show is in, uh, Adjusting Investment Themes to a Weaker Dollar. David McElvaney will be with us in the second half of the hour. John Tomazos, who's been with us once or twice in the past, one of the leading mining analysts on Wall Street uh, through over many years, he'll be with us in the second segment, and Michael Oliver is with me uh, now. Uh, the last time I talked to David McElvaney uh, of McElvaney Wealth Management, he was of the view that the dollar was uh, likely to get weaker, and he was turning pretty positive on gold. And we'd like to ask him, uh, when we talk to David this afternoon, why he thinks that uh, the dollar uh, is going to be under some pressure. And uh, obviously, since he made those remarks a couple of weeks ago, gold has really performed very well. It got smacked down pretty hard on Monday uh, when it seemed like there could be some peace evolving between China and the United States uh, from the G20. But that, of course, has changed. Um, we saw today gold is up to over 20 bucks, 23 bucks or so before the start of today's show. Uh, but anyway, uh, Michael, uh, we have John, as I say, John Tomazos will be with me. He's, 
he's really hot on uh, iron ore right now and on the steel industry. John tracks the steel industry, uh, and he'll explain where all the demand for steel is coming from and why the iron ore miners have done extremely well. I want to find out from John whether he thinks, uh, I mean, they've had quite a good run. So is there still more to, more to come or, uh, or is the, uh, the run pretty well over? We'll try to find out from John what his views are on that. Uh, but right now we have Michael Oliver, and it's so good uh, to know that he's with us once again. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Hi, Jay. <clears throat> you know, I want to ask you about the dollar. I know it's not the market that you're most focused on at the moment. Uh, you have been somewhat bearish on the dollar. Do you see it sort of meandering around for a while, or do you see some weakness right ahead, or, or what's your view on the dollar well, I now? think the, the recent weakness we've seen last month from the highs we made a month or two ago, uh, talking dollar index now, uh, up above 98, and it dropped down to under 96. Did it pretty mm-hmm. rapidly. That break, though on a price chart, doesn't necessarily upset most people. From our momentum point of view, we broke too much stuff. Uh, over the last few weeks. Now, we also look at quarterly momentum, which is a long-term metric, and we prefer to see monthly closes below trend structures on that that particular time scale. And frankly, you're trading at levels now. You can't close the month here because you, you'd be blowing that stuff out uh, to the downside and then adding to the negative technical. So, but yeah, we think the dollar has uh, trusted the secondary high. Its high high of recent years was $103.50 the dollar mm-hmm. index in our recent rally high was 98.20 area, and now we're, we're trading down about two, two full points below there. So we think that secondary rally is now over. It did take its time. And what's most interesting that gold people should pay attention to who are believers that if the dollar is strong, gold can't go up, is that the dollar index was at 97 on a sharp rally in August of last year. Mm-hmm. And basically from August of last year through last month, it was trading at or above or just below that level. You could draw a sideways line on the dollar. It wasn't doing anything except yeah. holding its gains. And yet gold went from the 1100s to 1400. So mm-hmm. if you're waiting on the dollar as a signal indicator for gold, you missed one heck of a move. Yeah. Uh, now if sure. the dollar weakens, I think it'll add some wind at the back of gold. Now, I think mm-hmm. it will weaken. But it's mm-hmm. not the, the, the only thing. Okay. No. Uh, if it were, then gold wouldn't be where it is now. Um, yeah, for sure. And uh, well, the stock market, I think, is also very pivotal here, especially U.S. stock market. S&P 500, we watched that and NASDAQ 100 very closely. And uh, <clears throat> this rally we had on news, headline news, you know, buy the news, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, if you did, you bought the S&P at the peak Monday morning at 29.77, cash index. And we're trading no 10 or 15 points below there right now. No big deal. Didn't collapse from that level. But it was interesting that that day that they bought the news and went back into, quote, risk on, that T-bonds and gold, while they dropped, they immediately gained it back today. T-bonds mm-hmm. are pressing at their highs, and gold's back near its highs. Oh. Uh, and the S&P's steady today. So how come it is that gold and T-bonds, which are you know, inverse to the S&P, mm-hmm. and perceived as risk off, uh, how come they're back near their highs? Yeah. Everything's so glorious with the S&P. Well, yeah. I think the possible reason is that the trade tariff war coming off of the headlines and you know being retired as a, as a scary dark cloud uh, potentially removes one of the things that Powell is 
been talking about, and that is yeah. the Fed is concerned about the uncertainties, and that's a mm-hmm. big uncertainty, and mm-hmm. that could disturb the economy, and therefore the Fed has to watch that China thing. Well, if the China tariff war is off now, or at least put in the back burner, then one of those uncertainties is off the page, and therefore the Fed has less reason to cut rates. Mm-hmm. So think about sure. that if you're long the stock market. You know, <laughs> the good news yeah. about the tariff war is also inversely uh, impacting the S&P based on the rate outlook, the Fed not moving quickly. Yeah, so, it's a strange anyway, world. Yeah. Uh, S&P, I'd watch very closely here. Uh, I don't think it can afford a, I would say, even a 1% drop from here. If you drop about 1%, we put out a report today with very specific numbers. Uh, I, won't, I won't reveal them. But basically, you can't afford to wobble here if you're long because there's some stuff you're going to break that could get this thing rolling on the downside again. And that's just what the bulls don't want to see. They've seen so many umpteen new marginal highs over the last year or so that don't go anywhere. That pretty soon yeah. they may give up on it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you would think so. It looks like a gigantic topping process that's been going on for the last, what, a couple of years or so, it seems. And yeah. uh, I've, I've seen these patterns before. It seems like uh, not, not very positive. Uh, I want to ask you about, uh, I think you, you indicated that you did some uh, you looked very quickly at a couple of uh, couple of iron ore companies, and I, as I mentioned in my introductory remarks, that we're going to be talking to John Tomazos. He's he's seeing the iron ore markets just on fire. What are you seeing uh, with a couple of the major iron well, ore I companies? I ran uh, before we came on. I ran BHP Billiton and mm-hmm. um, Rio Tinto, mm-hmm. and they're both quite strong, but their breakout levels, from our vantage point anyway, were many months ago at much mm-hmm. lower price levels. So, you know, if you're already in, fine. <coughs> it looks like, frankly, there could be some more yeah. upside. But it's not, it, from our vantage point, and again, looking at two of the leaders, uh, we see it as an extended move that really began from much lower levels, and so it's not a, a place to initiate brand new positions, in our view. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean it can't go higher, it's just, you know, uh, the ground level, entry level has been passed, and now your risk-reward is, is shifted uh, I'm not saying they're topping here, but the, the, they definitely have had a good run, and that that should factor into anybody who wants to. Now, there may be some facts, some market uh, symbols within this sector that have not had a good run. Veil, for example, has, has been under pressure for various reasons unique to itself. Right. Uh, and there's some probably lesser uh, iron ore companies that might not have done what BHP and Rio did, but... Uh, it's it's one of these situations where yes it's positive but uh, it's not ground floor entry level. Okay, uh, Michael, what about GDX right now? Getting back to the gold sector, and uh, you've indicated before you think that we really see the gold shares start to gain some some strength yep. uh, if the equity market in general uh, gets weaker. You know, people will be looking for another place to put their money mm-hmm. where they can make some money. What are your thoughts about GDX right now? Well, our technical work on GDX has validated what we've been saying for many, many months over the last year or so, that when the, the gold bull gets reborn again in the way that the public sees it as reborn, and that mm-hmm. was in crossing that mid-1300 level, that woke most people up finally who only mm-hmm. look at price charts, what happened to GDX uh, doubled uh, and better what gold did. And the spread relationship between the miners and gold has now broken out of a multi-year basing action indicating that we've just begun the shift such that the miners, which have been weaker, anemic, compared to gold over the last couple of years, that's changed. And it changed like a light switch, and it changed several weeks ago. And uh, 
we think, therefore, going forward, the better place to be in the gold sector are the miners. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, the major miners mm-hmm. should be reflected by GDX. The junior miners are still lagging, but I suspect at some point, as we gain more and more strength in the gold market, that that lesser sector will rise as well in terms of relative performance to gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's evident to me, at least, that I can't see who bought what, but uh, the money flows into the gold miners has changed dramatically over the last four weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, can, you can see it on a price chart. It's like they stuck a cattle prod on it. It just went <laughs> vertical. Uh, it went from just above 20 on the GDX up to over 26 in, in four weeks. Yeah, so just tremendous uh, <laughs> flows of money going into, into the gold uh, ETFs, I know. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's that's really interesting. And and what, is there any hope at all for silver? Yep. Uh, in fact, I'm. If, uh, you know, we're not crossed the numbers yet. We have some very specific numbers above the silver market, a uh, handful of percentage points, and uh, we've defined them and adjusted them for the new quarter. That if silver engages those numbers, we think silver will uh, bolt higher dramatically, and with a tone that it has not exhibited in a long time. So like a light switch again, just what GDX did over the last four weeks, I expect that out of silver, and I think silver will at that point in time when we cross those hurdles and their momentum-based trend structures. Uh, when we engage those structures, I think silver will just become a different animal and uh, become far more violent on the upside. Uh, and so it should be like a light switch event where people who are accustomed to seeing silver behave in a certain way will be shocked mm-hmm. by what happens. Yeah. And I, I would say it's, it's almost an inevitability. When I see these type of momentum bases built, as silver has, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a base that basically I would say is inverse to the topping pattern in 1929 on the Dow and the topping pattern in 87 mm-hmm. before the crash. It, it is a very potent-looking structure. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it go at that. It's an exciting time. Uh, it's OliverMSA.com. And, folks, now that uh, gold and silver are starting to really catch on, you might want to consider taking out Michael's uh, subscription uh, that focuses on the gold and silver sector. You might also add that there are a lot of uh, several silver companies that I'm extremely bullish on that I am following in my newsletter. Uh, if you want to take out a subscription to my letter, I think you'll be very pleased once these markets uh, really start to turn. And uh, there aren't that many silver producers, but there's a couple that I track that are really really good and, and very much under the radar screen of most investors. Michael, thank you so much for being with us again. Always thank a pleasure you, having you. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back uh, with John Tomazos, um, the independent mining analyst John Tomazos, uh, one, uh, one of the best and most highly regarded analyst, uh, mining analysts on Wall Street for many years. So um, we'll be right back with John Tomazos. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. 
Strike Point Gold, trading under SKP on the TSX and STKXF on the OTC, has a market cap of under $10 million. Strike Point is a new player in the Golden Triangle of BC and Canada. Focus will be on drilling the Willoughby Project in 2019. Prior drilling delivered over 20 meters of 25 grams per ton gold and 184 grams per ton silver. Recent receding glaciers have identified new gold targets. Neighboring projects have been acquired by Strike Point's largest shareholder, Ascot. Eric Sprott and Skeena round out the other top shareholders. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, uh, once again, John Tomazos. He was, he's was he been with me a, a couple of times in this show. Uh, he is a very well-known uh, mining analyst on Wall Street over, over many years. Uh, he's currently independently uh, employed and running his own business, and he, he's continuing to do what he's really good at, and that is mining, uh, analyzing mining projects and the markets and, and all manner of, the, not just the precious metals, which you're... Uh, which your host is focused mostly on, but John is much involved in a, in a number of, of very important global markets, and it's the VeryIndependentResearch.com, uh, uh, VeryIndependentResearch.com, and the name is very fitting because John Tomazos is very independent, and that's why we like to have him on the show. Thanks for joining me again, John. Jay, it's an honor to be your guest. It's really great to have you, and I want to have you just talk a little bit. Take a minute to tell our listeners what you do, uh, who your service is meant for, and how those who may be able to benefit from your service can avail themselves to it. Well, certainly. Um, since from 1979 to 2007, I worked for large Wall Street firms. I ranked on the Institutional Investor All-American team for various metals categories, I think 43 times. And uh, unfortunately, in June of 07, the, I was working for Prudential, which shut down its brokerage division. And I just kept writing my research reports for my old institutional clients. And 31 uh, bought my service the first year. Mm-hmm. So uh, for 12 years, I've been publishing uh, 11, uh, 19, on average, detailed investment reports about precious metals, base metals, forest products, and fertilizers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I basically operate like an institutional research boutique without a big bank. Uh, institutions can buy my service for 25000 a year and get all my stuff. Or individuals can go to my website, veryindependentresearch.com, slash uh, buy our reports and mm-hmm. buy individual reports for $500 a piece, such as iron ore mm-hmm. from May or Fortescue Metals from May that I'm going to talk about in our conversation today. Right. So let's jump right into it, John. Uh, the 
iron ore markets have been on fire. I couldn't believe it. I saw a chart here. They were up something like 53% over the last six months. What's driving that market in a time when the global economy seems to be weakening? So world steel production rose 6.2% in 2017 and rose 4.6% in 2018, where March last year, rest of world, ex-China, set a record. Mm -hmm. And this year, through May, world steel production is up 5%. Where China is all the growth and rest of the world has uh, shrank a tiny bit this year. Mm-hmm. So the three year cumulative growth is 16.6%, or almost 300 million tons of steel. And a ton of molten iron, virgin iron, needs 1.6 tons of iron ore. So iron ore demand has grown about 400 million tons in three years. Wow. And the iron ore price bottomed at $38 in December of 2015, and the iron ore companies stopped planning new expansions. Uh-huh. Uh, the four large iron ore companies' mines really consist of three departments, the mine, the railroad, and the port. Mm-hmm. And Rio Tinto, BHP, and Fortescue, the major iron ore miners, are port-constrained. And Valle has 100, 150 million tons of extra ports, but they don't have permits to operate 62.8 million tons of their Minas Gerai output because they had two accidents in 2015 and in January this year that mm-hmm. killed 19 and almost 300 people, respectively. Wow. And Valle has a 50% owned operation called Samarco, that's a JV with BHP that had the accent four years ago, that's 28 million tons and has not been able to restart. Wow. So um, let's talk a little bit, Jay, about uh, Chinese demand for steel. Yeah, that's where it's Their coming from, right? Their auto sales are down 12% in the first half of this year hmm. after falling 2.8% last year. Uh, their property market, their construction market in the private sector seems to be going sideways. They don't need to be building new steel mills and aluminum and other things and new export factories because of tariff and trade war concerns. They've taken half of world manufacturing. They're 54% of steel, 56% of aluminum, 35% of autos, and growing quickly. So crudely, China is about half of world manufacturing today, and the rest of the world starting to starve. So the entire growth in steel demand in China, or over 100% of it if the private sector is shrinking, is public. And let me call public four things. Mm-hmm. Military, civil public works like roads. Thirdly, roads outside of China, through Pakistan, all the way west to the Mediterranean, what they call their Silk Road project. Sure. They want to export goods uh, to the rest of the world or maybe run their military like Hitler did and have a good road system. Mm -hmm. And then fourthly, 
they're doing all kinds of uh, electricity and water and port and road public works projects in Africa because they want the copper and other metals and resources from Africa. So the U.S. had peak steel concrete reinforcing bar shipments in 2006 of 9.8 million short tons. China's steel output is 40% rebar, where ours is 8 or 9% rebar. Mm-hmm. They're doing about 360 million metric tons of rebar this year, or about 45 times more rebar than the U.S., Wow. Let me suggest those man-made islands in the South China Sea take a lot of rebar. Maybe they're building some military things that are going to be bunker bomb-proof because they're more steel than concrete. Mm-hmm. But the, it's not the private sector. It's the public sector in China that's sucking up all this steel. I have no way of knowing how much it goes up or down or sideways or continues, but it's up 10.2% this year. Well, it's uh, very strong. The price was $75 before Valley's disaster in January 25th, -hmm. and it's risen steadily every month. The metal bulletin price this morning for 62% iron ore is $125.77, and I like to read the Chicago Mercantile Exchange because it's in U.S. dollars, not Chinese yuan. Mm-hmm. And this morning, it was 119.45. The metal bulletin price is the wide benchmark. It's up, basically, it's up $50 since January 25th. Now, wow. the market realized iron ore was short when Valet had their catastrophe. Right. And the government shut Valet down half in Minas Gerais State. But I think the bigger factor has been the the 300 million ton rise in world steel demand. And then uh, also Rio Tinto missed 15 million tons of output, and BHP and Fortescue missed a few million tons each. They had cyclones in March. So uh, iron ore is great. And don't be confused by the aluminum or the copper or the nickel charts. That's something else. All right, so John, with just a few minutes left, uh, you seem to favor Fortescue as the way to play this, and uh, if so, why? And how much do you think is left? I mean, it's hard to say how long this could go on, I guess. So Fortescue Metals makes 58% grade iron ore for most of their sales, which one or two years ago was discounted $30 to benchmark. Mm-hmm. And... Fortescue's discount shrank $15 and might be shrinking to only $10. So the iron ore price is up $40, and Fortescue's price is up $15 more. Hmm. So Fortescue is a $6.42 stock today. The NASDAQ ticker is SFSUMF. There also is a second NASDAQ ticker, FSUGY, that's a two-for-one ADR. Mm -hmm. The ordinary shares paid a 21-cent dividend U.S. in the December half year.
they earned 21 cents U.S. in the December half year. Mm-hmm. They haven't reported their June half year yet, but they declared and paid a 62 cent dividend. Wow. So the stock yields 10% for the June half year that was $75 in January, and I don't think they averaged 110 in June. So they also suffered uh, cyclones, hurricanes in March, and lost several million tons of shipments. So it looks like they're going to be able to pay a $1 dividend in the December half year. Wow. And the stock is 642. <laughs> now, I do a discounted cash flow NPV model, Jay, mm-hmm. to value the company. I use a 10.5% discount rate, oh. an $80 benchmark. Mm-hmm. For your Even numbers. It's 125 yeah. today. Huh. Yeah. And my, my, net, my net present value model that I calculated on May 15 and haven't updated was $11.45. I'm a very conservative person. Yeah, I know you are. Uh, If I used $100 and a 9% discount rate, $100 for 62% benchmark instead of 80, it's 125 today. And if I used a 9% discount rate, I think I'd get a $20 U.S. target for the $6.42 stock. Now, this company is yielding over 20% dividend, annualizing the $0.62 they just paid. It's going to go up. And it's in Western Australia, which is a lovely, lovely place. If you ever want to take a vacation in Perth, it's a wonderful place. The Dolphins swim next to the ocean, and there's beautiful beaches to the south of Perth where Alcoa exports Illumina. Beautiful white sandy beaches. And uh, this company has $13 a ton direct costs for iron ore, even though the price is $125 today. Wow. And the balance sheet is normal. So this isn't some funky company that's about to collapse. Yeah. The market just doesn't understand the, how good iron ore has gotten. And, then I, and then instead of getting discounted, Fortescue's paid in full for the 58%. So this mm-hmm. stock could be a triple bagger collecting this dividend. Yeah, incredible. John, we're going to have to leave it go at that because we're out of time. I knew you were very excited about this. I wanted to hear about it. I wanted our listeners to hear about it. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to tell us about it. And we'll look to have you back on when you have another great idea like this. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the honor of being your guest. You bet. Thank you, John. All right, folks, so don't go away. We've got to go to break, but uh, David McElvaney will be with us. Uh, We're going to talk to him about his views on the dollar and these various markets. David has some ideas also about where to go, uh, what kind of investments to make in a weaker dollar environment. So don't go away. We'll be right back with David McElvaney. Oren Resources is a copper gold exploration company pursuing the world's next major discoveries. It has seven projects, including two active flagships, Committee Bay in northern Canada and Sombrero in southern Peru. 
This summer will be one of the most exciting times in Oren's history as the company turns the drill at Sombrero for the first time ever. The project's impressive surface results have identified Sombrero as an analog to one of Peru's biggest mines. Oren is also implementing cutting-edge machine learning technology to unlock its highly prospective gold belt at Committee Bay. Visit OrenResources.com and subscribe to keep up with the company's busy year ahead. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times the Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, once again, David McElvaney. Um, David um, is, has a very impressive academic background and a professional career in the financial industry. And from what I know, it isn't only his background and experience and expertise in the markets that he, uh, brings him value, brings, our, brings his clients value, but of equal importance is a, cultural, uh, is a culture of honesty and integrity that he has uh, implanted at McIlvany Wealth Management and the other related companies. Um, along with that integrity comes an ability to think outside of the box that uh, others would always like to um, enslave us in, it seems. So often, anyway, we're not supposed to think. We're just supposed to uh, follow the leaders, as they say. And uh, so it's really great to have David with me again. Thanks for joining me, David. Jay, great to be with you. Always good to have you with me, and I uh, titled today's show, Adjusting Investment Themes to a Weaker Dollar, uh, but before we get more specifically to that show, I'd like to just mention last week on your McIlvaney Weekly Commentary Podcast, the theme of your discussion was uh, gold's rapid rise, is it guns, parentheses Iran, or butter, parentheses devaluation. Uh, perhaps you could just talk to us a little bit about the theme of that show and what, what you talked about, uh, some of the topics that might have gone into last week's uh, podcast. And I'd like to recommend to our listeners that they, that they uh, check in with you, I think, every week. And you've got one coming up tomorrow that will be loaded up on your website, I believe. Is it, M- is it M-Wealth? Uh, well, is it the site, the site to go to is mwealth.com, mwealthm.com? You know, if, if you just go to McIlvaney.com, you can link to any of our pages, which would okay. include the wealth management or the commentary. So just the last name, M-C-A-L-V, 
a n y dot com. So okay. guns and butter, you know, the different take on on the Johnson administration days. No. Um, yeah, we have some concerns about what's developing with Iran, and uh, obviously the the idea of devaluation. We got to see the debates, uh, the Democratic primary debates, and it was all a number of ways in which we can spend money that we don't necessarily have to take care of people who have an infinite number of needs. So the potential domestically in terms of fiscal policy is there for devaluation. Competitive valuation in terms of trade could be a theme that, that develops. What we see in the gold market today is a safe haven bid. It's moving along with treasuries and boons uh, and, and, and other paper that's desirable from a safe haven standpoint. And so, you know, you're kind of caught on the horns of a dilemma because on the one hand, gold is getting some interest. And on the other, it's not necessarily the case that it would continue to be with a weak dollar in mind. Yes, mm-hmm. over a long period of time, you've got a negative correlation of 0.85 uh, dollar to gold. So it would it would make sense that a weak dollar would signify strong gold prices moving forward. But there are periods of time where you see, like we have in recent weeks, safe haven buying of gold. In which case, there really is no relationship to the dollar. You could have a strong dollar on the basis of people moving into treasuries because they're yielding more than other central banks, which are yielding less than nothing. Um, And at the same time, gold continues to motor higher because it's desirable as a safe haven asset. So um, I don't think the long-term success or maybe this period of success for gold requires a weaker dollar, although we can certainly make that case. Yeah, it's actually... uh uh, Michael Oliver, who was with us during the first segment, uh, pointed out that it's been some time now, I can't remember exactly the time frame in which the dollar has been stable, hasn't gone down, and gold has risen from you know under 1200 to where it is now. So yep. uh, it certainly is true. Uh, I, I also would like to mention, again, it's uh, to, for people to listen to your weekly commentary, because I think it's so good. It's usually about a half an hour in length, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I understand that you just recorded another one this morning that will be uploaded on your website tomorrow. Is that right? And if, if that is right, could you maybe give our listeners a hint of what the topic will be uh, for the one that will be loaded tomorrow? Sure, sure. It is going to be loaded tomorrow. And we talked about a variety of things. I mean, we're definitely interested in the disconnect between the stock market moving higher and as if there's nothing to be concerned about while you're still seeing lots of traffic into the safe haven assets. So yields uh, continuing to go lower and lower, uh, bond prices continuing to go higher, indicating strong demand. And it just means that you've got investors on the one hand who see no problems on the horizon, and another set of investors who definitely see problems on the horizon. That same divergence between equities and bonds was occurring in 2007, where you began to see yields decline, even while stocks were motoring higher as if it were 1999 all over again. So Mm -hmm. I think we're setting the stage for a significant decline in equities, and the only guys who are going to be surprised are your equity investors. Um, But as it's been said by many investor professionals before, the equity crowd gets it last. Mm-hmm. All right. So we, th- it seems to be the case. And, uh, you know, you can usually go with the bond markets, I think, long term, and you're probably going to be right. Uh, it seems that in those sort of, it's kind of a disconnect that we have here that that would certainly what, what my thinking is. I, um, on your June 21st weekly commentary, not the, not the podcast, but you also have a weekly commentary in which you sort of summarize the week and what's happened and how you see the markets at that point in time, you and your team. 
you, you wrote, and I quote, these are truly remarkable times for hard assets. We are finally beginning to see signs that King Dollar is joining the race to the bottom in a global currency devaluation war. Um, and so I'd like to ask you, what are you seeing that causes you to believe that? Because uh, if we, you know, if we, if we are going to have some sort of a market collapse, I think very often the dollar tends to get stronger, at least in the short run, because people are covering their, you know, the margin clerk calls and you have to pay your, you have to find, you have to sell assets to gain the cash to pay your debts. Uh, so uh, what are you seeing that causes you to believe that the dynamics may be for a decidedly weaker dollar or just, a, I don't know, what are your views on terms of how much weaker we might see the dollar and what might be the dynamics that lead to a weaker dollar? Well, you're right to frame things in terms of short-term and long-term. I think the long road for the dollar is a very weak and painful road. Short-term, it can do anything on a trading basis. Um, but what we see is uh, really a fight for hegemony. And we've, mm-hmm. we've maintained the world's reserve currency status for, for many decades following World War II. We're beginning to see strides towards uh, the rest of the world saying maybe the old monetary regime is not what the new uh, or future monetary regime regime should be or will be. And, you know, instex is certainly one move towards uh, tearing apart uh, the advantages we've had being the world's reserve currency. And, and the main participants in that are the mm-hmm. French, the Germans, uh, the British. And these are folks that we consider reliable trade partners and on the same page with in many respects. Um, but they too, I think, would see dollar reserve status is something that's not as important moving forward. So what would we do to maintain our place in the world? Would we voluntarily engage in a competitive devaluation? It's fascinating to me to listen to Donald Trump because on the one hand, he'll criticize uh, Mario Draghi's policies for for weakening the value of the euro and giving Mm -hmm. them a trade advantage, or Mm -hmm. for the Chinese for that matter. Mm -hmm. But if we weaken our currency, somehow (laughs) that's okay with him. So very, very much a double standard today. Um, and, And if it brings us an advantage, we will do it. And I think from his vantage point, increasing our share of the global GDP pie may include uh, the choice to devalue. So that, that's also an opportunity or an option that we may see exercised in the next four to six years. Yeah, it's uh, concerning the European uh, relationship that we have had since World War II, especially. Uh, it, it seems to me that there is growing discontent with the American policy, certainly towards Iran, for example. And I've read where there's some um, where there's some efforts on the part of Iran and some of the European uh, allies to find a way around uh, the sanctions that uh, President Trump is trying to impose on them, uh, including a way around the SWIFT system or a payment system outside of the Swiss SWIFT system. Do you know anything about that? Have you heard or read anything about that? Yeah, well, that's what I was mentioning with the instex, I-N-S-T-E-X. Uh-huh. That is right. the workaround for both the trade of goods and, and commodities, mm-hmm. uh, as, as well as the movement of assets, um, which, which circumvents SWIFT. And, you know, we're in the process of going after the Chinese as we speak, three banks that are doing business with North Korea, and the threat, the, 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 the sword, if you will, of Damocles that hangs over the Chinese heads is we're going to cut you out of the flow of capital uh, via the SWIFT system. And the Chinese response is, okay, and if that 
system proves to be problematic, maybe we just need to engineer our own system. So, I mean, we push, and at a certain point, I think we find that the energy we put into pushing could be used against us in almost a sort of jujitsu style move where our energy and our weight are all of a sudden a liability. We're trying to push people around, but it's used against us. And I think that's probably the case with Swift moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I still remember uh, when President Obama was trying to push through the, the agreement with Iran, um, and Secretary of State Kerry was warning a group of businessmen that if that uh, treaty wasn't approved or if it didn't go forward, uh, that a lot of the European nations would become very unhappy with us. And he said there, were, there was already talk uh, and discontent among our allies about the hegemony of the dollar and how they would like to see it displaced or at least uh, not as dominant uh, as it has been. So yeah, it seems to me that we could really be looking uh, at some major changes, uh, David, in terms of the global monetary system, especially if we have any kind of really serious uh, economic decline again, as we had in 2008, 2009. Wasn't it then when the Chinese and the Russians and others started to look uh, for ways to protect themselves from the next sort of decline that might be coming their way, right? Uh, that's right. It certainly opened their minds to doing things in a different way. Um, in, in an ironic uh, twist, it would seem that a real outright global depression would shift the balance back towards us. You know, we've got the sort of incumbent advantage. We've got the dollar safe haven uh, status. And, and if things get bad everywhere else, they're kind of the least worse here in the United States. You've, mm-hmm. you've heard the dollar being the cleanest, dirty shirt, as even right. Ian McCavity used to describe it, the best looking horse in the glue factory. <laughs> um, but you, truly, in, in a moment of panic and crisis, what currency do you want to be in? All of a sudden, this underscores our role, the importance of uh, the U.S. dollar. And so real turmoil could be our saving grace. Um, it, it, at least, at least in the short run. So, if all the uh, currencies in the world are headed lower, um, does it really matter as long as the dollar isn't the one that goes the most low? Well, I, I think for anyone who's not paying attention to real assets, and this is where hard assets and our focus on the wealth management team with hard assets and the focus of cash flow relating to hard assets or the actual metal himself, our sister business dealing in precious metals brokerage for, for mm-hmm. 47 years now, um, you, you see the gradual devaluation, the competitive devaluation, the relative, uh, the absolute loss uh, in currencies when, when you focus on real things. Um, it's when you're locked in the relative value game where it looks like the dollar's doing better relative to the euro, relative to the yen, but they could all be on a downward slide, just some sliding at a slower pace than others. Well, I think that's the importance of having some sort of reference point, some sort of a plumb line, some sort of an, an, an absolute value in the equation mm-hmm. so that you know where you're at and don't get sucked into uh, the devaluation game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's no doubt about that. Uh, I, I believe in uh, one of your recent podcasts, you talked about some of, uh, I think, the Malaysian prime minister and other uh, other leaders are really seeming to focus uh, on gold and going back to a gold-backed currency, providing that plumb line, as you say, I guess, for the rest of the world. So we have some reference point of value. Uh, do, do you see a, a realistic chance of some sort of a uh, commodity-backed monetary system. Do you, th- do you think that's a reality, or is that just a pipe dream of a lot of gold bucks? 
Well, I, I think when you look at Mahathir Mohamed in Malaysia, he's been a long-term proponent of gold and gold being a part of a currency system, whether it is you know relating to the Islamic world or it's relating, as, as he's most recently mentioned, becoming a part of an Asian regional trade currency. Um, so th- there's nothing new from him. He's long been a fan. There might be an openness to that uh, in Asia for trade-related issues. I think a broad-based acceptance of gold by the central bank community is a low probability because mm-hmm. it introduces disciplines into a system where they have uh, they've come to enjoy uh, the, the freedoms of really arbitrary decision making. They don't mm-hmm. They don't tie their decisions to rules. They pretend to base their decisions on numbers. Um, but the old disciplines of the gold standard are long gone, and they would never voluntarily take them back. So yeah. perhaps on the other side of, of, of a global currency devaluation, you end up with a return to gold. But it has taken extreme negative circumstances for the man in the street to demand the disciplines and only then do they come back. That's really the history of the gold standard is it's there, it's lost, the paper currency system gets screwed up and then they demand to bring it back. So popular Mm -hmm. demand for gold could do it, but we don't have the circumstances or the level of pain experienced by the man in the street necessary to, again, in a sort of populist shift, demand that kind of a discipline. Not yet. All right, All right David. So without a plumb line, uh, we can be pretty sure that uh, the purchasing power of currencies around the world will continue to decline. And so uh, that plumb line is gold for many of us. It's Maybe it's real estate. It's something that's real that can't be devalued away. Uh, in recently, uh, I think it was on your 21st, uh, June 21st, uh, weekly commentary. You provided some ideas about what you, uh, what you as a portfolio manager may be doing in terms of adjusting to a weaker dollar, a dollar that becomes weaker than it has been relative to other currencies. Uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about what your thinking is? What are some of the sectors? I'm sure gold is one of them, but what are some of the ideas that you, uh, that you have in terms of maybe some good places to put your money in a weaker dollar environment? Well, this is the challenge because when you start looking for ways of hedging against a weaker dollar, you tend to move towards commodities and then you embrace a cyclicality to the pricing of those commodities, which let's say, for instance, you're 65, 75, 85, or 55 and thinking about retirement, that kind of price cyclicality can be very unnerving. So Mm -hmm. the, the key, I think, within the portfolio management space and what we've tried to do is focus on income generation um, where some of that income is generated to um, you know infrastructure and real estate as well as commodities to, to help balance out the cyclical nature of, of, of the commodity movement. And the, the nice thing about having an income component, let's say you're able to create a yield of between 3 and 5%, is you're being paid to wait and some of the cyclicality in the commodity pricing um, is is less of an issue because you're moving towards a total return equation, part mm-hmm. of it income, part of it capital gains, versus, frankly, most commodity plays are just beneficial on a capital gains basis. So shifting focus to total returns, shifting focus to income, I think that's the way I would uh, harness some of the energy of, of, of those spaces. But again, we want to focus on real things. So imagine the old idea of owning a toll road, 
well, okay, it's not gold, but it is a real thing with cash flow. And so mm-hmm. if you can target real things that have cash flow uh, in complement to a gold position, now I think you're talking. And now I think you're talking about a portfolio that, that not only provides growth and upside potential, but again, removes some of the frustrations that come with price cyclicality in just a pure commodities play. Yeah, so it could be something like a pipeline or something like that that could provide. So, what are some of the uh, some of the other? I noticed that you talked about uh, timber, lumber. I think was one of your mm-hmm. ideas. Could you talk to us a little bit about what might be what might make lumber attractive? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's the risk of you know, are they building houses at a particular point in, a, in, a, in an economic cycle or business cycle? Um, are they using, you know, the trees for pulp? Is there as much demand for paper? What I like about timber is that it's something that's growing. Think of it in terms of sort of an internal rate of return at about 7% a year, given the growth in the asset itself. So when you have water, soil, and, 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 and the wood that's growing, it literally, it's board footage is growing typically at about a 7% rate. Mm-hmm. You may not be harvesting it. You may not seeing the benefit, but there is, let's call it, for lack of a better term, organic growth with something like timber. And so over a long period of time, it's a real asset that has internal an internal growth component. Um, and, and you can decide when and how to harvest uh, when, when pricing is, is, um, is, is more favorable to you. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you... Uh, with regard to uh, to gold, on your uh, June twenty first uh, discussion, your your written discussion, you talk. You said you were cautiously optimistic, um, and I think gold is obviously has performed very nicely since that June twenty first comment. What are your thoughts now? Is it overdone a bit in the short run? Do you think we might mm-hmm. see a pullback? Still cautiously optimistic. If you're looking at the charts, certainly break above the 1365 and, and, and above 1400. These are helpful points. Uh, but what we have yet to see is follow through from silver. The gold-silver ratio as recently as last week was you know, 92 and change. Um, and so without that follow through, it certainly leaves the, the possibility of, of kind of a false breakout on gold. Um, and, and, and so we'll, we'll have to see. We started by talking about gold in terms of the safe haven bid. The buying has neglected silver because silver is not as reliable as a safe haven bid. If you get into a scenario where gold is moving and there's a, a, an audience for it, a growing audience, then silver will play catch up. Silver will, will participate at some point, but there can be periods of time uh, where silver is just not treated the same. It, it's viewed for its industrial uh, commodity status and, and, and not as a, a purely monetary metal as, as gold typically is. And so that to me is still concerning. Love to see follow through there. Um, and if you look at the gold mining equities, very little follow through there. For all the move in gold from the 1200s to 1400, you haven't seen the kind of multiplied growth mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in a lot of your names. Now, there have been a few outperformers, but I think those have earned it on their own management merits and asset merits, not necessarily just uh, as, as a proxy for the price, as a leveraged proxy for the price. No speculators have really come into the gold share space as of yet, and I would like to see that as, as a form of investor dollar follow through. Right. New, new money coming into the sector would be nice. Uh, yep. Does uh, McIlvaney Wealth Management, do you, do you uh, as part of your portfolio strategy, own some gold mining companies by any chance? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is where, you know, it's taken us five decades to build an amazing team. And at this point, our team consists of some of the best analysts in the natural resource space, some of the best analysts in, in in the credit space. And so when it comes to both analyzing company specific opportunities in the natural resource space or recognizing specific risks inherent to the structural issues within the financial system, man, I I really, I'm incredibly proud of our wealth management team. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it go at that because my engineer tells me we're out of time. David, it's so good to have you back again. Uh, It sounds like something our listeners should check out. Uh, So it's McElvaney.com, I believe is what you told me. That's Um, right. Or our, our website for the wealth management group is mwealthm.com. M is in Mary. That's correct. Excellent. Very good. Well, thank you so much, David, for being with us. Uh, we'll hope to have you back again soon. Folks, that is all the time we have this week. Next week, Alistair McLeod will be with me, and uh, Sean Kuhn of StrikePoint Metals. Also, I expect Michael Oliver will be with us once again. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 